Okay, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 21 through 35. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. And blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Lord, my prayer is that every heart in here, because of the sign, that baby, that man, your eternal Son, whom you have, given to the world. May He is a sign, be a sign of salvation to all of us who hear this morning. And not a sign that reveals hardness and rejection of the only means of salvation to us lost sinners. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a question this morning. Are you a remnant Jew who has not stumbled over Jesus and fallen flat on your face and left in your sin? Or are you a Gentile upon whom the light of Jesus Christ has shone in your heart to bring salvation from your sins.
That's the question. As we enter 2011, and what Simeon's going to let us see this morning, that if that's true of you, here's 2011, I pray for us at Sovereign Grace. Be amazed. I mean above every real, everyday besetting problem. Be amazed at history. Be amazed particularly at God's salvation historical plan. And then look at it saying, I fit. He shined the light on me, a Jew or a Gentile, and I'm part of that historical plan. And in 2011, with your worship of amazement, say, God, may you use me more to overflow in meeting the needs of people who are hurting in the church and outside the church. May you give me dreams and visions that are avenues for sovereign grace to reach people. Keep that in the back of your mind as we look at these mind-boggling, penetrating words of this obscure man, Simeon, 2,000 years ago. First, Luke sets up the context. Jesus, as we saw the last time, is born in Bethlehem. On the eighth day, eight days later, he's circumcised to be brought into the covenant with Israel. And at that time, they name him because the angel told Mary what to name him. Jesus. Time goes by. Forty days after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph go up to Jerusalem from Bethlehem, about six, seven miles away, in order to offer sacrifice and pay for the ransom of this dedication of His Son. Because after, according to Leviticus chapter 12, a woman, a Jewish woman, gives birth to a son, there's seven days where she is unclean. She can't go to the temple. She can't be anywhere around it. Then after those seven days, there are 33 more days of her purification from childbirth. Upon which, add them up your 40 days, you are to go to the temple. She is to offer a lamb as a burnt offering. And then she is to offer either a turtle dove or a pigeon as a sin offering for the completion of this process of purification from childbirth. Now, a lamb. <laughs> That's expensive. I mean, there's lots of shepherds and they're supplying a lot of these people. You go to the temple, you have to bring your own lamb. Trust me, they'll be willing to sell you a lamb. And so God, in Leviticus, made it clear, oh, if you're too poor, that's okay. Instead of a lamb, then you can offer either two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Luke is making it clear. These people are poor. And so, he takes these two things. Mary's purification and the dedication of the baby who broke through the womb and it's offered to the Lord and then you purchased a baby back to take him home. Unlike Hannah did. So there's a small little 
ransom price. So pick up in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, the baby Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And in order to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves for you poor people, or two young pigeons. And then in God's providence, Simeon shows up. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms. He's going to speak. Just stop for a moment though. He's some obscure layman who's born again, who has the Spirit, who has genuine saving faith like his father Abraham or David. He believes in the written Scripture. He knows it well. We're going to see. He knows the prophet Isaiah. In his writings. Well, he really believes in these prophecies of a future. Especially of the promise of a Messiah. Meaning the anointed one. That son of David who is the deliverer of Israel. That's why Luke lets us know he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The, what's the comfort, the comfort, the peace that God had in covenant promised to Israel. Let me just flip back, if you would, to Isaiah for a moment. Clearly, the Holy Spirit and Simeon know Isaiah chapter 40. And this is essentially what it's referring to. He says, I'm waiting for the consolation. Bring the peace. The comfort, God, that you have promised. Chapter 40, verse 1 of Isaiah, we read, Comfort, comfort, or consolation, consolation. Comfort, my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Or in chapter 49 of Isaiah, in verse 13, we read, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on the afflicted. These are texts that Simeon is filled with. This is what Luke means. He was waiting, hoping, 
Not hope like I hope so, knowing God promised He's going to do it, and please do it therefore. Send this peacemaker. And so, the Holy Spirit leads Simeon, it says, to the temple, into the temple grounds, and probably somewhere in the courtyard where Mary's allowed to be, is a woman. He leads Simeon to these two obscure people who have a five-week-year-old baby. And he says, let me hold the baby. And he holds the baby, Jesus. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. My eyes have seen this salvation that is the light for revelation to the Gentiles. The light that is the glory of Israel. Here's Simeon. Sovereign one. It's really what the word here means. It's not the normal word for Lord. It's just radical. Sovereign one. I can go ahead and die now in peace. I think this is what he means. I'm at peace. Because you once again have shown yourself to me, Simeon, as utterly faithful. Not just in the fulfillment of numerous Hebrew, centuries-old prophecies, but particularly, as the text said, the Holy Spirit, because lots of people can believe in that and died, but it said, you're not going to die, Simeon, until you have seen the fulfillment of many of these prophecies in Isaiah the prophet. And so he says, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing this. Fulfilled before my eyes. And the stunning thing, get this again, what we have seen in these weeks throughout Luke. God's been so gracious to Joseph and to Mary. With Mary, you know, your relative Elizabeth. You're going to go there. You don't have a phone. You don't know. And she is pregnant. Okay, that one's true. She gives birth. And these dirty, smelly shepherds come. And they say stuff in the hearing of Mary about the angels. And then walking through the temple, and there's lots of people. There's this man who holds their baby and says, essentially, your baby is the culmination and the fulfillment of the whole Hebrew prophetic tradition. He is the Messiah. This one is the salvation that had been prepared and designed by God, your baby is salvation personified. That's what he's saying. He, he's got a baby in his arms. And he says, I have seen your salvation. Thirty-five years later, this baby will grow up 
And He will say to His disciples, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see. And they did not see it. And they desired to hear what you are getting to hear. And they did not hear it. So whether he's 35, 36 years old then, or the baby, it's the same eternal Son made man who is salvation. Personified. Now, We're going to concentrate on the next thing he says. Because his salvation, and he says, this is what I mean more specifically. Verse 32, quote, He is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now, what Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, is saying is that this baby, Jesus, He is a light. And that light is for a revelation, a revealing to Gentiles. And that same light is the glory essentially, of God's people, Israel. Okay, So, depending on what translation, I want you to read it wrong. He's not saying, He's a light to the Gentiles and He's glory for Israel. That's not what He's saying. He's a light. And this light has come into the world and there are two results. One result of Jesus' coming as a light is that He is the revelation. God's unveiling to non-Jews. And secondly, Him coming into the world is that light that is within Israel that shines forth as its glory. You getting that? Let's slow down then and follow this biblical unveiling of redemptive history that Simeon is talking about. Here, he says clearly, Jesus is coming. He is the light that's revelation to the Gentiles. And He is something that is even more than that to Israel. He's Israel's glory. Now again, clearly, Simeon And the Holy Spirit have Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3 in mind. If you've got a Bible, you could turn there and see it with your eyes. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Israel is the context here. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord, Israel, will arise upon you. And His glory 
will be seen in you or upon you and the Gentiles. See the word nations? That's what Gentiles. And the nations or the Gentiles shall come to your light. I shouldn't always assume. So let me just for a moment do that. Israel, Gentiles. This is what the terms mean biblically here. God sovereignly chose a pagan idol worshiper, Abraham. Come. Here's a promise. He believed it. And God promised, I'm going to make a people out of you. So through Abraham and his son Isaac and his Isaac's son Jacob, not Esau, Jacob has twelve sons. And those twelve sons become the twelve tribes of Israel. They are, in a particular way, God's chosen covenant people. Not the Greeks. Or the Chinese. Or different African villages. Or those northern white-skinned crazy Vikings that no one knows about yet. Way back when. But they're up there. Only this people, Israel, that God created is His covenant people. Everybody else? You're not that. Uh, here's the name for it. Nations. All the other ones. All the S. Or, that's the same word as Gentiles. And Simeon's picking up on this because it's the way God is revealing Himself in history and how He will do things. And we just read here, and Simeon reads in Isaiah chapter 60, My light is going to shine in you, Israel! And it's right there. And the nations shall come to your light. The coming of the light in this baby Jesus who is the glory of Israel, was purposed also for that light to radiate outward to all those who are not Israel, the Gentiles. In other words, Israel has a special task in human history. And at the heart of Israel's uniqueness is this. Salvation for individual souls from their sin comes through Israel and not apart from Israel. That statement I just made is explicit in the New Testament. And it's central. Just listen to one. Listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks. In Romans chapter 9, verses 3 to 5, he writes, let me just stop for a moment. And what he's referring to is this problem <laughs> that, that is becoming very evident 20, 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. This problem is already showing up in the Gentile mission. And that is this. Gentiles are flocking to the Jewish Messiah. And for the most part, I say the most part, Paul himself is a Jew, but for the most part, the vast majority of Jews 
are rejecting. They're Jewish. Messiah. And so he writes, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my brothers, that is, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, they are the Israelites. And hear Paul, hear him, and to them belong the adoption. To Israel belongs the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them, the Jews, belong the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the rest. And from their race, according to the flesh, through that Jewish girl Mary, is the Messiah who is God over all. Blessed forever. And so Simeon is saying, this light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ will shine on every nation, tongue, tribe on this planet and this earth. And that light comes forth from the Jews. Israel. He is the glory of Israel. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who comes as the very glory of Israel itself as an Israelite as a Jew, to the Jews, in order to bring the light to all those who are not Jews. Now again, this is not new. Well, that's a new idea, Simeon. It's been right there for centuries in the Hebrew Scriptures. For instance, Isaiah chapter 49. God says through the prophet, Speaking to Israel and ultimately to that seed of Israel who we understand now to be Jesus the Christ. He says 700 years before Simeon meets baby Jesus in the temple. Israel, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Another word for Israel. And to bring back the preserved of Israel. Okay, he's going to do this. But he says, to just save Israel, to just do this for Jacob and Israel, God says, that's too little. So he goes on. I will make you as a light for the Gentiles, for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It was always, before God ever created the world, long before He ever called Abraham, it was always God's plan and His purpose to send the Gospel of Jesus the Messiah to the world. Every tribe, tongue, nation. To the Jews, first, yes. 
But then, to reflect that light, that salvation to the ends of the earth. How loving and merciful is this Creator who doesn't leave us, Jew or Gentile, in our sin, but sends a Savior. And the way He did it is important to understand or He wouldn't tell us. He called Abraham made himself a special, unique people called Israel. And that God became a human being. Not a Greek human, but through Abraham, through David, through Mary, as a Jew, in order to be the light and the salvation of those people, the Jews. And then, to spring from there and save people from every nation, tribe, culture. Think about it. Much of human history, it's, it's there if you know history well. The Jews and the Gentiles. It's so simple, it's so concise, it's so clear right here in verses 30 to 32. But if you look at history the last 2,000 years, it's so complex and tension producing ever since the coming of the light who is the glory of Israel. Which, as we read on now in Simeon's prophecy, we see He predicted. Pick up in verse 33. And Jesus' father and His mother marveled at what was said about Him. And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is Opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary. But all of this is so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So, Simeon, he summarizes this baby's ministry and what he will be about with two images. This baby, here's his life. He's appointed for the fall and the rising of many Jews. And he's appointed to be a sign that will be spoken against, opposed. 
that first sign that he says, there he is, appointed for the fall and the rising of many. He's saying this. God has sent this baby in my arms to cause people to stumble and fall flat on their face. And others to not stumble over Him, but to be built upon Him and to rise with Him in salvation. And again, Simeon and the Holy Spirit are drawing on Isaiah the prophet. Where Isaiah the prophet made it clear as God promises to send this anointed one, Messiah, whom he uses this word picture, he's a cornerstone. I mean, see, you know, you build a house and just start structuring a house right now in wood in California with our earthquakes, and you don't dig down deep and build forms and pour concrete. That house will come crumbling the first movement of earth. Okay, when you're building big, huge temples and you got big, massive rocks, you need that big stone that's of the corner upon which everything's going to be plumbed and built and come off of. Okay. So he's got this image and, and Isaiah, or God, through Isaiah is saying, I'm sending this stone. And many of my people will, in judgment, trip. others they will see the stone and they won't be disappointed at all I want you to turn to Isaiah we'll start off in chapter 8 verses 14 to 15 the word of the Lord 700 years before Simeon says and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 28. Verses 14 to 16. Verses 14 and I'll pick up anyway through verse 16. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, in Jerusalem in other words, in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be disappointed. So, not only in his prophecy is Simeon picking up on these passages, saying that this baby Jesus, He's the promised one, He's the stone, He's the precious cornerstone that will cause many to stumble and to fall. 
Not only does Simeon pick up on that, but these texts are repeated throughout the New Testament. First, by Jesus. So, you, you, Luke, this is his narrative. And you go flip through Luke, go, go further down. In chapter 20, Luke is going to record for us, and he knows where he's going. In Luke chapter 20, I think I'm going to pick up in verse 16, but this, I don't have time, but the, Jesus tells a, the parable to his fellow Jews and to the leaders there about a landowner, and he was going to go away, and so he, you know, he put a servant in charge, and then they killed him. And then so he put another servant in charge, and, and the people of his land killed the next one. And he says, well, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'm going to send my own son and they won't, they won't kill him. And he sends his own son. Because the king is away. And they kill him. Pick up in verse 16. And Jesus says, Then he, the king, will come. And he will destroy those tenants. And give the vineyard to others. Now, when they heard this, they said, No way! He knew what he was saying. Surely not! We, Jewish leaders, would never do that! But this baby who grew up looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The Apostle Paul then 30, 25, 30 years later, picks up on this. And in chapter 9 of Romans, he writes, again, same problem. Let me just stop again. Same problem. Paul's dealing with this problem. The Jewish Messiah has come. Why are the Jews, the vast majority of them, there's always the remnant, there's always the few. But why are the vast majority already in the first century rejecting the Messiah? This is what he's... Watch. Pick up verse 30. What shall we say then to this problem? Quote, The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that comes by faith. But that Israel, who in the religiosity, and they got the book, and they got the temple, who were pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness, they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it with a heart of faith. But as if, and it never was, but as if it were based on works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, and Paul quotes, Behold, 
I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame or disappointed. The Apostle Peter holds these passages in Isaiah is central to his understanding again of the Gospel. When he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 6, he quoting Isaiah 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And then he writes, and he goes on, So the honor... He's writing to the church, to believers, some Jews, mostly Gentiles. So the honor is for you who believe. Awesome. But for those who do not believe, and then he quotes the Scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a Stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they're disobedient to the Word to which they were destined to do. What what Simeon gives us here is really clear while Jesus is a baby. This baby is divisive. He divides people into two groups. Those who fall and stumble over Him and are smashed. And those who rise and become part of the eternal building of which He is the cornerstone. This is Luke. Luke knows what he's doing. He's a good writer in his narrative. And he knows where he's going. And this prophecy of Simeon is just made clear and manifest through the narrative of Jesus' ministry. Luke, 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 i got to believe, he clearly is connecting this when he, yes, i got to tell that story when Jesus is going to stand up 35 years later in a synagogue and he's going to read Isaiah the prophet. And they're going to all be just fuming mad at him that they want to kill him right then and there and throw him off a cliff. And so Luke knows he's going to write. And Jesus is going to sit down to his disciples and say, Blessed are you when people hate your guts because of me. He is a divisive person. This is all over Luke. Let me just go. I'm going to go to one. I want to read it. Towards the end of his ministry, in Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 41, we read, And when Jesus drew near and He saw the city, Jerusalem, with the temple, the center of Israel, Jewish life, when He drew near and He saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now, they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come, Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. And it happened about 37 years later. A.D. 70. Thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven years before Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He was held in the arms of a saint who said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall of many in Israel and for a sign that will be opposed. He is a sign of opposition for hard hearts that refuse to see the truth of who He is. It was true then, and it's true this morning. And Simeon is saying, to Mary. And he's going to make this whole thing clear when he says to Mary, but the ministry here of your baby is not going to go all smooth and silky for him. When he says, Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. I think he means the, his whole divisive ministry. Not just the culmination. We're even going to see in the next passage. She's tr- Where's Jesus? And they're upset. Picture it. Okay. It's been a few days you try to find your son in a large city. And he's 12 years old. And he makes a comment. Don't you know? I have to be about my father's business. Years later, Jesus' mom and siblings are outside and she knows he's going to make a comment. Who are my mother? My sisters and brothers. They are those who hear the Word of God and do it. This whole ministry, and of course the culmination of it in His brutal, bloody death. Finally, Simeon says, what's the purpose of all this? It's right there at the end of verse 35. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, His message in His ministry and ever since shows where people's hearts really are before God. And particularly or very exegetically, specifically in what Simeon is saying is that his life will reveal where these Jews' hearts are. You'll find a heart like Peter's. 
and even a tax collector, Matthew, and you'll find hearts like the Pharisees and the scribes who are itching to kill Him. He's saying, Do you, Israel, believe Isaiah the prophet? Do you really believe in the God of Moses? In other words, believe in the sense of, are you of faith like Abraham, whom you call your father? Simeon is saying, Jesus is the litmus test. That's it. If they reject the culmination of all prophetic Scripture in the person of Jesus, it just shows they don't know God and He's not their Father. And they have no heart of faith. The commentator, Daryl Bach, let me just, I want to quote from him because he summarizes now the, the passage that we've just seen so, so well. He writes, When Simeon's prophecy is viewed as a whole, one sees a prophet at peace because he knows that God's salvation has come. Salvation's light has come in Messiah. Simeon rejoices. But the picture is not entirely rosy. For the promised one is variously perceived. And many in Israel will reject him. In the path that the child takes, his mother will feel pain. But his ministry will expose who is hostile to God. The Messianic Son will be a light to the world, but His shining will bring division as He shines forth. Many will be raised to the light, but tragically, others will fall in judgment having missed the promise. What we have here in Simeon's short, brief, prophetic words is a big, huge picture of God's theological, historical, salvation history. Here it is in a nutshell. Israel, the Jews, those people, small tiny people in history, were promised the light of the Messiah to come through them and to them and to deliver them. And as we saw in John the Baptist's dad's prophecy, that the Messiah is going to come, and He's going to be vicious and destroy Israel's enemies, and allow them, therefore, to live in peace as they pursue holiness and righteousness. And we saw that that did not happen. In Jesus' first coming. So God sends the Messiah 
through Israel, the son of David, to Israel. And he sends him as the cornerstone and the foundation stone of an eternal building that he will build. And for the most part, the Jews have tripped and stumbled and have fallen flat on their face over Jesus. They rejected their Messiah. Jesus was sent to be a sign that is opposed, rejected, to become against. And this is by God's design. God's purpose was that by means of Israel, Receiving through Mary the Messiah, and there's a remnant that believe, but through Israel's overall rejection of the Messiah, His purpose was to bounce off of them and reflect that light to the Gentiles, to every tribe, nation, and people, and to bring untold who knows how many millions or billions into the fold of this eternal dwelling let me just read what I just said because I would never say something like that if I didn't feel I had really solid clear unambiguous biblical grounds the apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 11 he's referring he is a Jew okay, and he says God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see. And ears that would not hear down to this very day. So I ask, did they, the Jews as a whole, stumble in order that they may fall? Meaning, was that just it? Just for the fun of that? That's what he means. As an end? No, is his answer. By no means. Now hear Paul. By the Holy Spirit says, God is very purposeful. That's not why it happened. He says, rather, this is why. So that through the Jews' rejection of the Messiah, Meaning, he says it this way, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the rest of the world, and if Israel's failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion into Jesus their Messiah one day mean? In rejecting their Messiah, in other words, even now for the last 2,000 years, 
the result is that God's grace has flooded the rest of the world. Now, I've got to say it, and I want to say it as clearly as I can. This, what we hear from Paul, and from the rest of Scripture, gives absolutely zero grounds for the ungodly, demonic, anti-Jesus doctrine of anti-Semitism. And I want every Gentile believer in Jesus You've got to hear this and you have to understand why this is true to the extent that that we don't, we're not understanding our salvation yet. And that is this. Don't ever think that what anything you heard here this morning means in any way that a Gentile, Messiah-loving person is inherently any better than any Messiah-rejecting person. You're not. In fact, God is not yet done with Israel. The Apostle Paul goes on in Romans 11 and says, Yes, in God's redemptive purposes, A partial hardening of the heart has come upon Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It hadn't happened yet. It's gonna. I continue. And Paul says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 59, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be My covenant with them when I, the Lord Jesus Christ, Take away their sins. There still is yet a time to come after the times, which has been going on for 2,000 years now. I don't know how much longer it's going to go. But there's a time when the times of the Gentiles will be done. And then God's sovereign purpose to flow outward in unbelievable sovereign saving grace upon the Jews who are on the earth at that time that almost all of them, if not all of them, will be born again and embrace their Jewish Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then sometime, I have no clue, after that, Jesus is going to come back. The same one that Peter saw go up into heaven in that resurrected body. And He will fulfill all those promises, particularly not to the Gentiles, but to Israel. And He will destroy every one of their enemies and set up an eternal home. 
forever. And so Paul concludes this way. Starting in verse 28 of Romans 11. So, here's the reality. Don't be afraid of it. But be clear about it. And here are warnings that I gave. And Paul would give his own warnings to Gentiles. As regards the gospel, right now, they are enemies of God. For your sake, Gentile. But as regards election, God's choosing, the Jews are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He will remain faithful to His promise to Israel. For just as you, Gentile believer, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, without God, without hope, in the world, But now, is it true of you? You have received mercy. Why? Because of Israel's disobedience. So they too, since that's true, this is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. And since that is true, So they, Israel now, also have now been disobedient like you were in order that by the mercy that is shown to you Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy for God has consigned everybody. Not just Gentiles, but Jews. He has consigned everybody to disobedience. So that He may have mercy on all of them. To the extent we who claim to be Christians say, meaning from our heart, I just, that's really bad. I don't understand how a person can sin that way. It's to the extent you do not understand your own sin. And the mercy that saves us. Paul got explicit on God's big picture redemptive plan. And the bottom line was this. God in doing all that he's doing is utterly merciful. Every human being since Adam stood justly under his holy, perfect, 
wrath. But he had a plan. I'm going to choose you, Abraham. I'm, I'm up to something. And your son Isaac, your son Jacob. And the tri- I'm up to something. I'm going to start revealing myself in the earth through you. And there's a purpose. And God's purpose is so that by His Spirit and those means, He would make sin clear. Because unless a people and every individual person understands the reality of sin, they can't be saved. And He wants religious sin to be made so manifest that He gave them His holy, eternal Word through Moses and the prophets. And He says, look how merciful I am! And He let sin reign in its religiosity that it would kill the Messiah. Now, here's the thing. Any of us Gentiles who look at that and you in any way look down your nose, you don't get it. All Israel was doing was God's way of taking a small group of people so He could write a book and make it clear to say, all of you are this bad. Every one, Plato, Aristotle, obscure cave group in South America, they're no worse than the Gentiles. They're no worse than anybody. They're just used to show you your own heart. And He did it. And so he jumped off of that historically for his purpose to have the times of the Gentiles to pour out mercy with the preaching of the gospel for these last 2,000 years. And because of that clarity to make Israel jealous, God's going to do a mind-boggling thing. It's going to come a day when all these Jews who are living on earth are just going to say, I see it! And these truths of God's real mercy, that He saves nobody for anything that they do or who they are. Your mommy and your daddy, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, Christian church, pastor, dad, or not, is no grounds or reasons why God will save you. There's nothing in you or about you that deserves it. And that's the good news for us wretched people. He just says to all, Jew or Gentile, come. Come. And so, I go to where I started. Are you a remnant Jew who has not stumbled over Christ, but by God's mercy has have fallen upon Him and seen the light and you are not disappointed in Him? Are you a Gentile upon whom that light has shone and you have seen your wretchedness and you have fled 
for refuge to Jesus Christ, then all the more in 2011, be amazed. We have children and we have wives or husbands and singleness and work and money and there may be grief on the horizon and all kinds of unexpected things this coming year. But let us be a people who this year more than ever want to wake up every day and say, God, I don't feel amazed. Help may feel amazed that not only do you have this massive, glorious, redemptive plan, but now God, and you put your name there, you saved me like you did Jacob. That's me, and I live in this time, in this history of your redemptive purposes. Would you please let me partake more of loving other people because of my amazement? Would you show me and give me dreams on how to use my time and my talents and my money in order for the benefit of relieving the pain of others as you put them in my path where no one sees or in ministries within this church? May we say the way Paul concludes his great Romans first 11 chapters. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. As we sing, as we hold the cup, and we hold the bread, May God's Spirit be poured out really strongly upon us as Sovereign Grace Fellowship this morning so that as we eat of the body and drink of the blood of Christ, we will do so in the amazement of Simeon, this obscure, born-again, Christ-loving saint.